0: Warning, this episode contains discussion about abuse and certain abusive and coercive control techniques used in inpatient youth treatment facilities. If you or someone you love has been the victim of abuse, some of the information discussed could have the potential to be triggering for you. If you are a victim of abuse, we love you and you are not alone. Be sure you are in a good place mentally and emotionally before engaging with the content of this episode. Please stop listening and get support from a licensed mental health care provider, if you feel triggered or overwhelmed by the discussion. Being able to see the, the girls I worked with grow up and become adults. I feel like we didn't have any impact on that. I feel like they, they grew up and became the adults they were going to become anyway. And I feel like we didn't add any positive aspects. All we added was many years later, they still talk about the trauma. That's the lasting impact. That is really what you added to them was the trauma. You didn't really change much in their life in a positive way. Yeah.
1: Welcome to Historicology. This is Andrea Hansen and Elizabeth Beckman. We are here with our guest, Tom Edmonds, and we're going to be talking about the troubled teen industry. Tom and I had a conversation about this several years ago. I'm really excited to have him back here to talk about his experience as a staff member. Tom is now a a social worker, works with addiction, has several years of experience So looking back at this, uh, I think through a unique lens, a little bit different from our last conversation, Tom, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah. um, So I worked in the troubled teen industry, I guess what we're calling it, for several years through college. That was kind of the job I worked in college and I was was able to work at three different facilities. And so I I kind of got different perspectives from all of them and would like to come and share about some of the experiences I've had and the way my opinion has changed from pro to very much con regarding this industry.
1: Yeah. I mean, tell us a little bit about the the pro. Where was that coming from?
0: Yeah. So I initially started, I was just taking a psychology class in school. And one of my classmates, I think I was mentioning to someone how I was looking for just like a job. And she had mentioned, hey, I work at this place with troubled teens. And I'm like, oh, my! God, it's actually a job in the psychology field. It's not like working like a gas station or something like that. So I was just pumped. I was excited. And should have had the initial red flag wave on my interview when I show up and I'm just nervous of like okay what am I going to say this and this right and it was kind of like they shook my hand like hey hey cool all right so when do you want to start and I'm like oh okay so <laughs> this exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a it was a facility just for troubled teen girls and I'd never heard of these places before, so I thought like, "Wow, this is really cool!" Like, they're taking these troubled kids from these like rich, affluent neighborhoods in like California. They're bringing them out to very, very rural Southern Utah and giving them this nature experience. And there's therapists there working with them. So like, my naivete was very much on display. Where I was like, "This is really cool. Like, I like that they're doing this." It wasn't until I got in and experienced more of it that I realized it's not really helping the way. And in fact, it was actually more traumatizing to them. And so having these little light bulbs go off of like, oh, no, no, no. we're Not only are we not helping, but we're actually traumatizing them further is what really changed my perspective on it.
2: Do you have a first light bulb moment that you remember that was like, whoa, this is not what I thought it was?
0: Yeah, I, I think the first initial light bulb moment was we had a therapist there, and we had, they had two therapists on staff, and they had one therapist there, and he was a really young guy. The girls loved him. They thought he was just the coolest guy in the world, and I hadn't worked there long, and we were kind of rounding them up for the night and getting them all in their rooms, and I'm doing the count of the of the kids, and I'm like, we're like five kids short. This is not good. <laughs> Where are these kids? And this facility was like a an old bought out motel. So they were like different buildings and they had this building called the house and that's where like the fun and games occurred and stuff like that. But it was, I think it was like where the owner of the hotel lived, so It was almost, it kind of was a house. And so they said, Oh, these five girls you're looking for, they went with that therapist into the house. And that was just so not protocol. We did not do that. There was always a staff member. With the girls, when they met with the therapist, there was a sign therapy times The therapist just didn't take random girl. Like they always had like a group of like 10 or more. So we just took like five girls. And I was very confused. And everybody was acting like it was very normal. And very, very confused. And I looked over at the house, there's no lights on in the house. And got even more confused. But was too afraid to kind of step up and challenge anything at that point. But I was curious. And when they came back they said, oh, he decided to call like an emergency session with us. And I was kind of just digging like, okay, what, what was going on in there? And they were saying that, you know, he was talking about how some of their problems stem from like craving affection. And so he was going to like provide them with with affection and they went into the house on the couch and he all just, they sat there and like cuddled with him on the couch and uh, yeah, I was just I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe what was happening. And the fact that everybody was acting like this is normal. The girls had no idea. They th- of course, they trusted him and said, Oh, yeah, this, they were doing some therapy with us because we, you know, require affection. What Cuddle therapy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just blown away by this. And just the fact that nobody seemed to be worried about this was very concerning to me. Yeah, what
1: a horrifying position to be in. And then of course, the therapist is much higher ranking than especially a new staff member. You hadn't heard of this industry before you were just, you know, going in. So of course there's red flags going off, but you know, what do you, what do you do about that?
0: You know, exactly. As- That's the, where the staff members came from is the, they, like you said, the ranking system is just like the therapist is above you. The therapist is essentially your boss. And so no, nobody thought to question him. The fact that I was kind of in school and studying this where it was like, This was setting me off where like a lot of the people I worked with were just basically like local people who they had hired to kind of just be on site staff to watch, who just thought like, well, yeah, it's a therapeutic technique. And I'm like, no, 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 this is this is inappropriate. I did report it to the owner and the therapist was fired for it. So I'm glad to say that did have a somewhat happy ending. But yeah, it was just kind of a, a concerning thing that that could happen. That that was something that could happen that very easily could have turned really, really ugly fast.
1: Yeah, other staff members who weren't in school or who didn't know that it was wrong might not have reported it. Could have been going on for a very long time before you spoke to the owner about it.
0: Yeah, if I hadn't have brought it not not to you know paint myself with the hero, but like if I hadn't have brought it up, I don't know if it would have happened because like I said it was happening at night. The owner wasn't even there at night. Nobody else seemed to understand my concern with it. So yeah, it it not only would have gone on, but I think it would have gotten a lot worse. Well,
2: and that's one thing I noticed from our last podcast that we did, where we were also talking about the teen treatment industry, is this issue with often staff and even therapists sometimes being asked to do things that just strike them wrong, or that, Andrea, you even have shared about it, where you were trying to do things to counterbalance certain things that as staff you were expected to do, but felt like it was counterintuitive. Obviously, in this case, what you're sharing is an experience that obviously wasn't part of the therapeutic process, but was wrong. But were there other experiences you had where you felt like even as part of the treatment process, like approved staff behavior that you look back on now and you go, oh my gosh, this was not right. Like you said, it's not helping these girls. This is actually hurting them or re-traumatizing them.
0: Um, they love to do, uh, and I can't remember the exact term for it, but it was basically, I think they called it room flips. They would come in there and just decide, okay, the staff would kind of gather around and whispering like room flip tonight, room flip tonight. And so when the girls were in there, like watching a movie, we'd go in there and just completely rip their rooms apart, dump their drawers out, throw their mattresses on the ground, throw their sheets everywhere, all of their personal items, underwear, bras, everything is strewn all over the place. The, of course, justification was we're looking for contraband, but it, that wasn't it. It's, I mean, it was clearly t- there to kind of humiliate them, to bring them back down. because so then they didn't know about it. So they'd be coming back and watching the movie and they'd walk in and see their room completely torn apart. Yeah, And like, and I hate to say this, but we're all sitting there laughing um, sure. while all their personal items are laying across the ground. While well, they have to pick everything up and put it back together,
1: and already being in this situation where they really have nothing, they have no privacy, they have no personal space, they have no—even their own thoughts are not their own. They don't, they don't get to have that. And then having all their stuff turn around as if they are, you know, bad kids who need to be caught. Right is the right, vibe right. Uh, behind it. So contraband, for those who aren't familiar with the kind of in treatment terminology, would be anything that you could potentially harm yourself with anything that has any kind of messages or pictures that might be related to gangs or drugs or anything like that or sexual stuff or, or anything. I remember um, coming to work one day at the, the treatment center that I worked at as a therapist. And in my office, there was this giant notebook full of porn. Essentially it was written. It was just stories that everyone had written and they had passed it around and and it was in my office with gloves, right? To go through. So just this this feeling of that they can't even have that, right? Obviously they, they were teenage boys. They were at the place I worked, they were teenage boys. They were in the middle of development. It's totally natural and normal for them to be interested in sexual experiences, right? And to have that compensated, that's so embarrassing. And I did end up having a conversation with them about this is natural, this is normal. And there were roles about that they were able to to do, um, I guess I'll just say it. they were able to masturbate in certain areas, but not in other areas, right? Did they have masturbatoriums? <laughs> <from that one? laughs> I think it was like they <laughs> could, like in the shower but not in their room or something like that. Like which makes sense because it was a shared room and you want to avoid any kind of issues there. But even that somebody telling you. Yeah it's still, it's, it's so much for them to have to to go through and where I've worked as well. And it, also the place that I went as a teenager, they did the same thing, just completely went through all of your stuff all mm-hmm. the time, whenever there's just no privacy.
0: Yeah. I'm surprised you brought that up because like, I, I consider the the one I'm talking about, cause I worked at other centers after this, that the one I talked about, I can kind of like quote, we call the good center, because I felt like maybe their heart was in the right place, but it didn't really work out. But At that center, they had an anti-masturbatory rule and encouraged, because there was like four girls to her, and encouraged the other girls to tell the night staff, so-and-so's masturbating, tell them to stop. Like, that's helpful. Um, So I'm surprised that yours had that allowed, because, yeah, they actually had a rule there that you couldn't do it.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, The place that I worked at, I think they did a lot of things really well, mm-hmm. as far as the broader treatment center. And, you know, like we were talking about before we hopped on the recording, most of the people that I've worked with within the industry really have the best intentions at heart. They yeah. really want what's yeah. best, just like you and I, and and our experiences working in the treatment centers, um, I think there's a very small percentage of people who are going into the field intentionally wanting to harm people. And then it all gets you know, caught up in the system where the harm ends up happening, regardless of the intentions. Yeah.
2: To me, that just demonstrates there are multiple levels of victims in this industry, the way it has been and is being run in some cases, where you have base level, the clients, the invasive behaviors that are, called therapeutic, but really are meant to just kind of take from them any sense of stability, safety, unbalance them, cause them to understand you have no power. We can go through your stuff. We can take your stuff. We can tell you where to masturbate or if you can or can't masturbate, all of these things, but also then staff, because like you go in there and you go, oh, I'm going to be helping yeah. teenagers and we're doing good things. And oh, we're, we're flipping the room. Ha ha. It's helpful though. We're, we're trying to look for contraband, right. but then either in the midst of it or after you then have to go through the process of looking back and going, Oh my gosh, like, what well, what did I do and, and what did I engage in? And what has that been like for you? Was that really heavy to have that realization of, Oh man, I wasn't actually helping in some cases.
0: Yeah. It, it hit like a ton of bricks. Cause I, I honestly, the, the, the girls home I worked at, I had a lot of fun. It was one of the most fun jobs because I would go in there and spend an eight hour shift laughing and joking and having fun with them and i remember there was one moment where i had come back the next day for working another shift and i said something like let's have fun again and they said something Some it was something along the lines of like this isn't fun and i'm like "What? we had a great time and they're like yeah you did because you went home we're prisoners here. And that really just like, was just like a slap across the face. Cause I hadn't, I mean, obviously I knew it consciously, but I I hadn't really realized that. I'm like, Oh yeah, you're here against your will. You hate it here. You're having fun is just trying to make the best of a bad situation. Uh, Later on, after I left the center, I was actually able to make some of friends with some of the girls there on Facebook. And, Seeing them share their experience of talking about how traumatizing it was to be there just gave me this intense feelings of shame. I felt so bad about what I had done because even though they, they reached out, and I, I told them all individually that, and they had reached out and said, no, it wasn't you. You actually treated us with respect. You were kind. You were definitely better than everybody else there. But I'm like, yeah, but I contributed to it. I was part of it. Yeah, you know, I attached my name to it there and so it was just it was a really shameful thing to feel like I contributed to the trauma of so many young girls. That's a very shameful thing to have to live with and I can't take it back that I did that and it really just completely flipped my opinion of these treatment centers over to where I'm like this is a bad thing that is happening here and we shouldn't be doing this because this was the this was the center i considered like i said the quote unquote good one and now they're all sharing these experiences about how much they hated it how much it was worse than anything else they dealt with in their life how traumatizing it was to go there and like i said these are people i consider my friends now like i was friends with them on facebook and I did that. I traumatized my friends. And it's really, really hurtful. And like I say, even still today, you know, we're talking almost 20 years later. It's still a very shameful thing to live with. That's why I'm happy to talk about it because like any kind of attention I can bring to this just makes me feel a little bit better about what I contributed to.
2: Well, and I'm sure you talking about it now is such a meaningful healing balm to people who have been through that experience and they need the validation of people who might have been on the other end of it and yourself, I consider someone like you a victim of those treatment settings as well. And you're in your probably your own healing process, which I'd be interested to hear about too. But what a wonderful thing that you can validate, hey, what happened to you is not okay. And I am so sorry that I contributed. And while you can't take away the things that happened to them, that's got to be an amazing thing for them to hear and and helpful because people don't always get validation in that way they're left fighting and saying no it was not okay and everyone else moved their family or the center and everybody's going no it was fine you yeah. were the problem yeah where are you at with your healing process because you said that still brings up a lot of shame for you do you feel healed or are you continually kind of in a healing process not to turn you into a victim or no, no cast something on yeah. you but
0: uh, well i feel i was really lucky in the fact that i would say of the girls I worked with, I ended up being friends with on Facebook at one point. And I actually was able to reach out to them individually, and apologize. And I don't think everybody gets that kind of opportunity. And every single one responded and said, don't worry about it. You were the one of the good ones there. And they named, of course, the terrible staff members, but it was still shame of like, not calling those terrible staff members out of watching them do what they did and just kind of let it happen and just contributing to the industry as a whole. I feel better in the fact that I was able to individually apologize to people. I think we had talked last time about um, like the Paris Hilton documentary. Like I haven't been able to even watch that yet. I'm interested in it, but I can't bring myself to watch it just because I know it's going to bring up feelings of – I contributed to that. Like I was part of that. So in that regards, I'm still kind of recovering in a sense of getting to a place where I can just be okay with that. But I do feel really glad that I don't feel like anybody individually blames me for anything.
2: And what helps you to heal in your process as a, as an ex staff and trying to cope with realizations you have about what happened in those centers. Is there anything in particular that's been helpful?
0: I'm um, talking about it. I think anybody, someone brings up the subject, um, I'm very happy to share my loud mouth opinion and say, wait, stop. <laughs> now, I that you're hearing a whole lot of pro um, discussion these days on group homes, but um, I'm really forth or upcoming about my experiences there and saying, okay, here's what it looked like. Like it may sound like a great idea to take these kids and do this, but Let me tell you what happened with my experiences and hopefully kind of change people's minds. And, um, that's, that's what makes me feel better is getting that word out that that's not a good experience and and sharing like some stories individually about some, the girls had shared with me, because I think sometimes people tend to feel less sorry for me, but if I share some experiences that the girls had told me, it's kind of like, Oh wow, that's horrible that a center would do this.
2: Are there any experiences that you've been given permission to be able to share from some of these people that you know have been through the treatment center process?
0: Yeah, I'll share the story that I share with most people that really kind of gets them to be like, oh, wow, seriously, that happened. There was a girl and she was, I don't think, 15 or 16 and was kidnapped by her stalker, essentially. And was taken to the woods, held there, repeatedly raped, beaten for days, given drugs out there. And then she escaped, went back to her home, drugged, had been missing for days. And the parent's response was to send her to this treatment center because clearly she was some kind of delinquent. And... The people who transport people to these treatment centers, we called them goons, they would come in the middle of the night and while the kids are sleeping in their bed, jump in there in the middle of the night, grab the kids out of bed, handcuff them, drag them past their family into a van and drive away and transport them to the treatment center. And this happened about a week maybe after this horrible experience happened to this girl. Now, this treatment center has re-traumatized her. Has kidnapped her. She's just become a was just was a kidnapped victim. Now she is again, and she was brought to our facility with no warning, no knowledge to what, what had happened to her. She sat in the corner for about three weeks. Wouldn't talk to anyone. Was shaking. Was crying. And she was labeled the weird girl no. because what's wrong with her? And it wasn't. There was no like trauma perspective it was just what's wrong with this weird girl and she won't talk and everybody's just you know coming in there invading her space like hey come on talk hey join the group kind of a thing i've had a chance to have like a lot of discussions with her years later and she just keeps describing like just what a horrible experience that was for her just how traumatizing that was for her to all of a sudden be ripped from her home and around all these strangers and being forced to live by these rules and Nobody trying to do anything to understand where she was coming from, and um, sorry, I'm getting a little choked up talking about it because I just I just feel so bad for her. I felt so bad, and I, and I say again, I was part of it. I was kind of like, "What's wrong with weird girl?" Kind of over there. I didn't have the knowledge, I didn't have the experience to come from a trauma perspective. I, I joined in with everyone else in kind of like the mocking initially. So I just feel really bad that that happened to her at all, and the uh, you know I was part of it. It's
1: horrifying. Yeah, really horrifying, and. I remember you telling me this story in the past as well, and you you had said that you didn't know about her history until years
0: after. Yeah, fact, it
1: didn't come out in treatment.
0: Yeah. Um, th- that was another thing that made me feel really, really great is she reached out to me as I was in the process of apologizing and friends on Facebook, and she messaged me and said, I'm in intense therapy, and I'm writing about this experience. Would you be okay reading what I've written? And not only just to kind of read it to share the experience with me but also to proofread it and stuff like that and i was like are you sure you want me to be a part of that and she's like yeah i trust you to to i'll let let you in to that and so yeah i was just reading it and just being like i I, there was there was hints about what may have happened to her and i just had no idea the extent of what she suffered and it, it was just horrifying and i just kept like Apologizing to her, she's like, "No, no, it's okay." You know, I'm just, and I just, I just, I didn't know how to react because you know, now I'm, I'm considering myself, you know, friends with her, right? and now it's just like she's not just a someone I'm working with. I, this is someone I genuinely like, and to find out they went through that and they were in such a vulnerable spot, and I could have helped her more at that time. Yeah, it was just it was just really, really hard to read, and really hard to to go through. Yeah,
1: I can only imagine, and the the mentality in the treatment centers from what I've seen and experienced, it very much plays into that kind of situation happening, right, where you get so hardened and the staff are trained essentially to be more like bodyguards than anything else, right? And just hired with, with no training whatsoever. And then there's this idea that these kids are the worst of the worst because the other stuff didn't work supposedly. And you have these mantras being told to everybody like your best thoughts got you here, or whatever your um you did something to get yourself here, so you're there's something wrong with you, there's something very, very bad about you, and from there, how are the staff supposed to react other than just trying to get them to conform to whatever it is that the treatment center is trying to get them?" to conform to, to get to the groups, to follow the schedule. And the privileges all get taken away and taken away until they start conforming to those rules. And there's not really that spaciousness or that empathy when these kids are first coming in of, oh man, like what's going on in their life? Are they okay? Yeah. That's not the question. And that really should be the question. Are they okay? But it's not the question. It's It's what's wrong with them? How do we need to get them to... Uh, you know, what problems are they going to cause? Right. Mm-hmm. Did you see that same mentality? Do you think that played into what happened with this girl?
0: Oh yeah, definitely. I know there was, there was one experience where we did have kind of a newer girl there and was just, she was very resistant to following the rules. And of course, instead of just coming from a, you know, a trauma perspective, like why, why is this happening to you? Why are you like this? Of course it's, it's punish her, punish her until she follows the rules. And this was, this was near the end of my working experience there because we, as i was working there i saw it happening i said this isn't right and they basically had what they did is i found out that she loved her hair and so they brought her in front of everyone and shaved her head and i just went wait a minute this is getting out of hand at that point um So, yeah, experiences like that where it was – yeah, we we were there to make them fall in line and follow the rules. And and like we said earlier, like because the therapist had said so, like this head shaving was approved by the therapist. So how dare you question that? Of course it's not wrong. The therapist said it was okay.
2: When it seems like like uh, you both have brought up, there's this lack of sensitivity. There's a lack of trauma-informed perspective for the clients, but then there's a lack of uh, equipping staff with perspective, skills, understanding, you know, psychoeducation. And then there's pressure as staff to fall in line and need to do what you're told to do, whether it's by a superior or kind of as a groupthink What type of pressures did you feel you faced as staff in that type of environment that you look back on and you're like, oh, it's so toxic. You know, if you can tell people who still are listening and going, yeah, but that's just got to be one-off cases here and there. What would you say in your experiences are common pressures that staff face from higher ups in these settings?
0: Um, Yeah, I think like like I mentioned earlier is just that you are there to keep people in line and the line is set by someone else. So you're not setting the line. You're not saying, hey, this should be doing this. They should be doing this. The line, the directive comes. This is what needs to happen. You do that. And your questioning of that means you're questioning the whole program. And you're questioning helping these girls. And so, yeah, it's very much pressure. Like we have meetings of here's what you're going to do. It's, it was never like a discussion. It was just mandates coming down. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. And, you know, where does it come from? The therapist, the therapist has ordered this order. The owner of the program has ordered this. This is what's happening. So, yeah, there's very much a pressure there to conform to what's going on because you don't want to stand out as a staff member because you've got to work with these staff members as well.
1: It reminds me of the Stanford prison experiment yeah
0: exactly
1: where you know an authority figure is telling you that you need to be cruel to these other people yeah. and even though you can't really think of any reason why you need to be that way that's valid this authority figure is is telling you to do that yep right? and then is um from the therapist perspective as well there's a lot of that pressure from above so the therapist becomes the spokesperson for the clinical team right and for the uh, and the clinical team essentially also has to just conform to the owners who may or may not have any therapeutic experience whatsoever there. This is just their business. And a lot of the owners of a lot of these programs don't even live anywhere locally. They're out on right. the East coast. They don't ever fly in. Um, so there's all of these pressures just kind of going down the, the chain and then terrible, terrible things happen. So based on, your experience or from what you saw, did you ever see staff taking those orders like too far or taking, taking things and using it to play out their own maybe aggression or their own issues that they weren't
0: dealing with? Yeah. um, That was actually the, the very last straw my end of working in this industry because I worked in this, the girls home and then I actually moved. And when I moved, I to a different city. I was like, Hey, group homes, I'm gonna keep working in them. And so I worked in two other ones there. And this, so I was working at the, at the last one and, and again, it was another abandoned motel, bought out motel that I don't, I don't know why they seemed to flock to that, but it's July and it's in Southern Utah and it's hot. And there was basically like a, I can't remember what they, cause there was like a timeout room that they had. And the timeout room was like basically like a little alley in the outside hallway covered in like plywood. So, it's an oven, and essentially it's, you know, 100. Like a hot box. Yeah, yeah, it's a hot yeah. box. And so that would basically where they'd send a lot of the kids when they couldn't, you know, could before they couldn't calm down or whatever, was go out there and sweat until you're going to calm down. Um, but yeah, I was working um, with on the girls' unit one day, and there was an, another girl acting up and just wouldn't calm down, wouldn't sit down, follow the rules kind of a thing. So they called over the walkie talkie, hey, we're short staff. We need someone to take her to the timeout room or whatever and there was one guy who was like i'll do it and even his, his i'll do it was so aggressive that i was kind of like oh this doesn't sound good and he takes her there and they weren't gone long and he came back and there was very noticeable bruising on her face and that's when i was like okay i'm done and because it was again not questioned nobody had a problem with this nobody had an issue with it And I had to just leave at that point and say enough is enough because it didn't seem like this was abnormal that this had happened. And this didn't seem like this was the first time that he had done this.
2: Well, and like you brought up with the prison experiment, they ended up having to end that experiment early because just the suggestion of – You're going to be the prisoner and you're going to be the guard and you behave as a guard is going to behave. People embodied such cruelty and the people put into the prisoner roles were so disturbed and so distressed and so traumatized that they had to end the experiment and they realized it was unethical and they recognized this was not something that was acceptable to take place even under the name of research. From what you could see in these settings, how did the higher-ups justify what they were doing? Was it even to a level where all of you were receiving justification along with, you're going to do this and this is why, this is this is the good that you're doing, or what narratives those higher-ups must be telling themselves to go the hot box, the taking someone's hair, the isolating someone like we talked about last time, the taking of their shoes the not allowing them to look at people, the not allowing them to speak to people, the stealing them at night from their homes. How do they justify it?
0: Great question. I think this, the Stanford Prison Experiment is a great example because just me as a person, like that, it, all the stuff that happened there is so against uh, my beliefs, but I did contribute to a lot of it. I, I, I sat there and let it watch and watched it and let it happen. I never actually physically abused anyone, but I certainly made fun of people and stood by while things were happening just because again, you're the prison guards, and they're the prisoners. And this is what you're supposed to do. They're the bad people, you are correcting them. It wasn't until I got away from it, that you're able to see it a little more clearly. So yeah, I think that's how they're justifying it, in a sense is they're so close to it, that they're not seeing exactly the trauma they are inflicting on some of these kids.
1: And I think also making sense of it from a behavior perspective, like you said, we're correcting them, right? And that's, we're not so far away from when spanking your child was considered an appropriate way to shift their behaviors, or
2: beating them, or beating them.
1: Yes, and now we know from research and experience that that's not actually beneficial. It might help correct their their behaviors in that exact moment, but it's not actually going to help them become a whole healthy, happy adult. Um, and it's the same with these is really intensive. You know, where they're doing something very bad, very wrong. They are going to harm other people. They're going to harm themselves. And we are here to fix them aggressively.
0: What they teach you in the initial stages of working there, they said they were going to teach you like physical defensive type maneuvers. And they called it PCS. It was PCS. I I don't know if you've heard the term PCS. So so we're learning PCS. And it's a lot of like...
2: Maybe describe the term just in case. I will. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Because I just heard PCS and I just blew it off like PCS. Later came out to find PCS stands for pain compliance system. Which basically means, and and I thought it was like defensive, like as I was learning it, it's if they're attacking you, but it's not. It's learning to pull their arm behind their back and bend their wrist until they're in so much pain that they comply with what you do. Very, very, very happy to say I never used that, but I did see it used, and again, not in defensive manners. It was, you're not listening to what I'm saying. I'm going to cause you pain until you stop. And um, yeah, just, I, I... It's shocking to think that that is um, pushed by the higher-ups.
2: Just this mentality of deserving that even if a child or a teen is struggling or troubled, this idea that you are deserving of, of pain, you are deserving of punishment, you are deserving of shame or to have everything stripped from you rather than a more effective perspective as we've even talked about, which is, is there trauma here? when I've seen some of the most aggressive or even what seem kind of disturbed children, it's not for lack of aggression or uh, compelling that's happened by their parents. Often there has been an excess of desensitizing these children to aggression and to threats. And when you've basically pushed a child to such an excessive point where you've you've hit them and you've hurt them and you've taken everything away, um, there's not a lot of leverage you have anymore they're kind of like, okay, fine. Kill me. Right. You know, What more are you going to do? Right. And so this idea that more of probably the same of what they've been experiencing is going to change the behavior.
0: Right. I and mean, we can't change our behavior until we're in a safe place. And how are you going to feel safe around a bunch of people who are physically abusing you? <laughs> so yeah. it, it just, it's completely counterintuitive.
1: Right. Physically and emotionally, yeah. is, it's – there's no safety whatsoever. So I'm curious, with the first experience that you mentioned where the therapist did get fired for having these inappropriate cuddle sessions with the clients, did anyone report that to Doppel, do you know, oh, to the no, licensing
0: board? No, not even close. No, in fact, um, the owner had finally come and said, okay, I'm going to let him go. I'm too concerned about the paper, which I was proud of. Um, But he did allow the therapist to have a goodbye session um, with the girls and basically met with all of them. And we were just kind of staff to stand outside and not really interrupt. And he was going through telling the girls, like, this is you know, bullshit that I'm getting fired. I'm just doing some radical therapy with you. Don't listen to what they're saying. And, and I'm just like, and nobody's here monitoring this. Nobody's hearing this happen. Um, but no, that was never reported to anyone. Um, Were as, the parents
1: notified? or?
0: No, I highly doubt it. I don't know for sure, but I would I would highly doubt that happened.
1: That's, and for me, that I asked that question because I think it really highlights the systemic issues where so much of it is around covering our butt. Oh, yeah. As opposed to doing what's right by the clients. Mm-hmm. You know, that they were being groomed, yeah. right? Flat out, that's just what was happening there. And their parents should have been notified, and licensing boards should have been called. There should have been drastic intervention. But the therapist got fired, so the problem's gone, right. and we're just gonna we're just gonna sweep it under the rug and right. pretend that everything's okay, and then go on as business business as usual and that kind of stuff happens pretty pretty regularly in these every therapist, like we talked about with Jessica in our last discussion. Therapists know how to write notes in a way that if the records are subpoenaed, it's not going to say what actually happened. you know it's going to To use a lot of therapeutic justifications, a lot of clinical words. There's a lot of making things seem right for the parents and for the licensing boards, and the kids are an afterthought.
2: I'm wondering if you witnessed this where you worked as well, fostering mistrust between staff and the clients, parents and the clients, because again, I think further that covers a clinic's tracks. Because, well, if your child tells you, I was abused, this happened, that clinic can not only have that paperwork where they make it fit and they acknowledge something happened, but it was a therapeutic thing, your child is just lying. How much did you experience that where not only were they teaching you basically pain compliance type skills, but how much did they try to foster a sense of distrust towards the clients, towards the teens?
0: Um. I don't know if they foster mistrust is more of just fostering the idea of we are the authoritative figures and letting everyone know like what's involved in like pain compliance and letting the kids know that as well, like this is what we can do to you, and this is this is how we're gonna keep you in line uh so I think it was more of like a fear tactic
2: like intimidation very too. much so yeah more than fostering a sense of hey, they're liars and don't listen to them.
0: Uh no I I don't recall any situations like that at all.
2: How much did that? I know, Andrea, you worked at a center where you said there were some things you really felt they did well, but of course there's other things that you maybe feel they didn't do so well. How much did that type of mentality of causing mistrust impact your experience going through a treatment center when you were a teen? I
1: know it a, a lot when I was going through. Uh, There was just constant messages that we were all bad, we were all liars, we were just manipulative. Um, There was a a time, I think, after we had been there for a couple of weeks, we were supposed to stand up in front of all of the other kids and our parents and all of that and say whether or not we thought we needed to be there. And everybody knew (laughs) if you said you didn't think you needed to be there, you were going to drop your level. You were going back to the very beginning because that was being manipulative. So everything that we did that wasn't on their agenda was considered manipulative. Even expressing emotions in front of our parents was considered manipulative. There was very much an emphasis on that we were trying to get away with stuff all the time. And I do remember that mentality where I worked, especially among some circles. It's such a hard conversation, I think, because... It was traumatizing for the kids who went through there. And the co-workers that I had, the therapists that I worked with, as far as the ones that I worked closely with, I know that they had the best intentions in heart. I know that they were good people trying to do good things for these kids. And the staff members, especially the lead staff members who I worked very closely with, who had been there for years and years and years, they loved the kids, right? They were very dedicated to helping these kids do better. As was I, I loved my clients. I still, to this day, I think about them all the time. They're all wonderful people who I care about. And like Tom was saying, I also did contribute to this traumatizing experience that they had. There's so many dualities there. And I never want to sound apologetic for the field or apologetic for any trauma that was caused. And I think at the same time, there are larger things at play than it just being a bunch of bad people trying to do bad things to kids. So, from that perspective of we're trying to get them to toe the line, we're trying to get them to progress in the program, and then some staff having just no training or no understanding whatsoever, or having their own personal mental health issues or power dynamics that are going on, of course there there were absolutely misgivings that I heard about, and iffy situations that I heard about, even after the fact after I wasn't working there anymore, where kids were treated as if they are just a terrible person and they got themselves here and they're super manipulative and we have to monitor all of their phone calls and we have to read all of their letters home and we have to make sure that they don't write notes to each other because they could be doing bad things. They could be manipulating. They could be trying to get their parents to pull them. And sometimes, you know, stuff like that did happen where the kids were making up stuff that was happening to try to get their parents to take them home. And at the same time, they were in a horrifying situation and they had been plucked from their lives. And what person wouldn't do whatever they can to try to get out of that situation?
0: I'm glad you brought up the subject of like why they're there because that was a big eye-opening experience for me as well. And initially, like again, wanting to work there was... I'm thinking juvenile delinquents. I'm thinking like they're in trouble with the law and here I can be this positive role model who comes in there. And um, it was the first time that I was, cause every time I did a, a therapy session, a staff member was there. And so I was a staff member uh, there for the, one of the therapy sessions and it was going through, why they're there as kind of a like like they they had repeated this several times. You could tell like as they're introducing themselves to the group therapy, they're like, "Hey, I'm so and so. I'm here because I did they're like taking responsibility in a sense." And I was blown away because I'm expecting like I'm here for you know Grand Theft Auto and stuff like that. And almost everyone, I'm here because I had sex with my boyfriend. I'm here because I was drunk and I had sex with my boyfriend. And I'm like. Wait a minute! What <laughs> these are juvenile delinquents. Like, they—they were kidnapped in the middle of the night and drove to rural Utah because they had sex. Like that—that that was really shocking to me. That they were these hardened criminals that I was led to believe they were.
2: There is this misperception about what type of teenagers end up in these situations, and I think it further allows us societally to go, "Well, yeah, they—they they need to be right. there." They're out of control.
0: Yeah.
2: And you end up finding out so many of them, if not most, are there because they're doing Average teenage right. things. <laughs>
0: <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the most of the things they did I did as a teen and I wasn't sent away. And I, I couldn't imagine that I, w- I would be extremely traumatized if someone were to kidnap me in the middle of the night and send me around strangers to get help, quote unquote. And so yeah, that, that was a really eye opening and shocking experience to see that they weren't these criminals that I was supposed to be working with. They were regular kids, it just so happened that their parents, for the most part, were rich and emotionally uninvested and really just their just get it get them out, get' them, send them somewhere else where they can get help because I don't want to deal with this right now.
2: So a question for you with what you saw in some commonalities of the kids who were sent to these centers where you worked, if you could tell their parents a message about what might be contributing to their child struggling, what do you think these parents need to know? Just like the staff, the parents probably don't hate their children and they're going, I want to punish you. They truly think I'm going to help my child. This is going to save their life. We talked about that last time as well. But what do you think these parents need to know about maybe what they're child needs instead of being sent
0: away. I mean, just put simply talk to them. Just try sitting down and talking to them. Not saying that that's going to be the magic wand cure all for everything, but, build a relationship of trust there where they can come to you and they can talk to you about things. If they're trying drugs, here's why I'm trying drugs. If they're having sex, you know, you can have a safe sex conversation with them. You can explain to them, you know, maybe why you shouldn't or why you should or what, but having a conversation with them instead of just whatever you're doing is bad and you must be sent away and have this behavior corrected and come back a good kid. Talk to them and understand that people do things. I'm sure they weren't perfect as teenagers so they can maybe identify with, hey, here's what I did as a teenager. Here's maybe some advice I can pass on to you. But that seemed to be the theme there when I talked to the kids is just, I didn't know I was going to be kidnapped in the middle of the night and sent away. My parents never talked to me about this. You know, I was at odds with them. I was in trouble with doing stuff. But it was just, I was in trouble. They were mad. Next thing I knew, I'm on my way to Utah. There wasn't discussion as to why these behaviors were happening. And so I think that's yeah, the best advice is just talk to your kids. Not going to fix everything, but I think that's just a great first step to take in a non judgmental way and just finding out why are you interested in drugs? Why are you interested in sex? Why is this happening? What can I do to help? Would just be the best thing to do.
1: I think that's great, yes, like talk to your kids. That's a huge thing that's missing and and not just talking to them, like talking at them, yeah, but like you're saying, develop that feeling of trust that they can come to you as a parent, and that starts young, yeah, true, you know? um, but it can be developed. Get involved with your teens outpatient therapy if you are sending your child to therapy, you also need to be in therapy. Your own therapy as well as family therapy with the teen. There are so many things to try before going to the extreme of sending them away. The other thing I would say is try to figure out how to move through or deal with your own shame. What I saw often is parents not wanting to divulge to their family, to their friends, etc. what's going on in their family. So it's easier to send the kid away and say they're at a boarding school, sure. than to admit we need help. We're not okay. Our our kid is, you know, hurting themselves or hurting us, and we're trying to hide it all the time. But then also trying to hide your kid away from people is also hurtful and shameful for them, as they obviously can't control themselves right now either. Um, even if it's very much seems like they are controlling themselves. If if they're acting this way, they're not controlling themselves well. So if parents are able to manage their own shame and their own embarrassment around what's going on with their kid and with their family and create a sense of community for themselves and other people they can lean on and other people who can come in and help, then that would greatly help to mitigate the potential of having to send the kid away.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea.
2: And I, I think for myself, working with families, one of the biggest things that I notice a lot of parents who are struggling with their children don't understand is that your children are going to talk to you the way you talk to them. Your children are going to be more strongly influenced by what you're modeling than by what you tell them. And I don't remember if I shared this parable. It's one I always love because it just had stuck with me powerfully, but it's about the mother crab and her baby crab. And that the mother crab is walking across the beach and they're, why are you walking sideways? Stop walking sideways. Walk straight, walk straight. And then the picture in the book is showing the mother crab walking sideways. I would see this with parents where I would watch Parents speak to their children in such derogatory, condescending, angry, stern, yelling, swearing, name-calling, all sorts of demeaning behaviors, and they're like, why is my child disrespecting me? Why is my child swearing? Why is my child acting like this? And I'd sit back watching, going, do you not see? You're walking sideways. There are some families I saw where children really suffered and struggled, and this very clearly is not a matter of them having been nurtured into this. But in so many other cases, parents understanding that your most powerful tool with your child is what you model to them. And so, like you said, doing your own work is essential because if you don't have it managed, it is really unrealistic to expect your child to because they're taking their cues from you. And the last thing that's going to help is sending them away because they're going to come right back, even if they're quote unquote, all healed, all better, all fixed. They're going to come home and they're going to fall right back into the hole you are going to pigeon them into, and they're going to do the behaviors you're modeling. And it's just going to be more trauma that the child adds on to potentially the pile of trauma they they had going in there.
0: Being able to see the, the girls I worked with grow up and become adults, I feel like we didn't have any impact on that. I feel like they they grew up and became the adults they were going to become anyway. And I feel like we didn't add any positive aspects. All we added was many years later, they still talk about the trauma. That's the lasting impact. That is really what you added to them was the trauma. You didn't really change much in their life in a positive way.
2: Do you have any message to anyone who's been through this type of treatment center who is in their own healing process or who is struggling to begin their process of healing, is there anything you feel like you could say to them to try to aid them on their way?
0: It's not your fault. I I think you're sold uh, an idea that isn't necessarily true. And by the time you're deeply ensconced in it, it's kind of harder to see that that's not the case. Nobody's going in there with the intention. Oh, I hope nobody is going in there with the intention of, of traumatizing the kids, but it's happening and you're sold as this is a helping tool. And it's only later that you see that it wasn't a helping tool. You didn't do this on purpose. Don't beat yourself up too badly for wanting to help and just choosing the wrong path.
2: And what about for anyone who is still ensconced in that setting, a worker, a clinic director, someone who firmly believes that what they're doing is helping Is there any message you would have for them if they hear this
0: podcast? Uh, My message is probably a little more radical. I would say get out. I don't see any benefit to it. I don't see any value to being a part of it. And so I would personally like to see them all gone. I don't have necessarily a therapeutic message. I would just say get out. Go do something else. If you want to help someone, go do something else that's actually going to help people. Because I don't think you're going to make the impact you think you're making in there.
2: Mm. Well, we so appreciate you coming and talking to us about this. I know there's a lot of other topics, too, we could potentially talk about in the future if you ever want to come back. Absolutely. But we really appreciate your courage and sharing your experience because I think that's a really valuable and beneficial and scary thing to do is acknowledging where we feel we might have done harm, even if we were trying to do good. And I appreciate what you're doing to try to help people understand what's really going on in those centers and the healing that you're trying to help facilitate by taking that direct accountability with people. Although you're as much, from my perspective, a a victim of it as well.
0: I appreciate that that I can come and offer that perspective because I know when I had talked to Andrea uh, a while back, she was saying, I can get a lot of interviews with kids there, it's harder to get interviews from staff. And so if someone listening to this, if this helps anyone say, maybe I can take accountability as well. Maybe I can step up and say, I feel that same shame. I'll feel great about that. If it could just help one person be able to be brave and come forward with that.
2: Well, thank you so much. And for everyone listening, we're so glad that you are here. If you feel challenged by anything you've heard, I want to prompt you to lean into that. Open up your mind to the possibility that What's being shared here is very legitimate and maybe for your benefit and those you're trying to help, a perspective shift is needed. If you have questions for us, if there's anything you want us to talk about, if you want us to have Tom back for another conversation or to ask other questions, let us know.
0: Is this going to get put up for a vote or something? Whether yes. I should come back or not?
2: If you want him back, thumbs yeah. up. If you don't, thumbs down. <laughs>
1: Uh, no, it was it was really great having you, Tom, and I really appreciate you coming forward. And I also hope that it inspires others. It is so hard as someone who's worked in the industry to come out and own it and say, "Yes, I I was part of this." And there's so many fears and so much shame that come along with that. So. I really appreciate you setting that example and not just completely disconnecting from it, not just completely ignoring it and sitting here in this discomfort and in this pain space with us and having this conversation. Hopefully, we'll have you back again to talk about even more experiences. We'll see the voters up or down. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But again, in the comments, we'd love to hear from staff therapists, people who have gone through the teen industry. I struggle with wanting to say clients or patients. It's really just victims of the troubled teen industry. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear what you want us to talk about and even criticisms about what we're talking about. We'd love to hear it all.
2: Well, this has been Hystericology Podcast. Everyone take care of yourselves and have a good day.